From the West Australian, it's Wednesday the 20th of December. I'm Ben O'Shea and this is The West Live. The West Live. The West Live with Ben O'Shea. Was 2023 the year we finally got fed up with influencers? Social media is still chockers with them, but there definitely seems to be a change in sentiment towards their activities. And I reckon that's mostly because it's a relatively new phenomenon and now common sense is finally starting to catch up. For instance, legacy media has had to play by certain rules when it comes to journalistic ethics and standards in advertising. Influencers haven't had to stick to those rules and have often done the exact opposite. That's all starting to change in jurisdictions around the world, including Australia, where governments are acknowledging the role influencers play in shaping public opinion and behaviour. And with that acknowledgement comes the obligation to ensure it's a level playing field with legacy media. Take Italy's top influencer, Chiara Ferrani, who has this week apologised for misleading consumers over purchases of a Christmas cake. Ferrani, who has almost 30 million followers on Instagram, was fined 1.075 million million euros for claiming sales of a designer pink Pandora would help fund a children's hospital in Turin. It didn't, although the cake's producer had given money to the hospital months before launching the product. Ferrani has promised to donate one million euro to the hospital, which seems like the least she can do. But when it comes to these social media stars thinking they can wield all this influence without the accountability that should come with it, well, It's like trying to have your cake and eat it too. Coming up on today's show, we'll find out why budgies make the best pets and why MSG is back on the menu. But first, let's continue our countdown of the 23 biggest stories in 2023. The West Live. Making news. And joining me in the studio is Sunrise correspondent Matt Tinney, here to count down the 23 biggest stories in 2023. Today, we're going to do numbers 14 to 11. And so this was a fascinating news story in 2023, right at the start of the year. And it might have slipped off the minds of a lot of people, but do you remember in the middle of January when a tiny radioactive capsule went missing in Outback (laughs) WA? It was lost off a truck. It's very small. Uh, It's around about six millimetres in diameter and eight millimetres high. It had casium-137, a radioactive isotope, and it was being transported 1,400 kilometres from a Rio Tinto iron ore mine near Newman to Perth uh, for processing. Uh, and remember when it went missing at it the time? It fell off the back of the it truck. It fell off the back it? of the truck, yeah. and it took a, like a, maybe a week or so before it, we were notified that it was even missing because yeah. I think they maybe hoped that it would just turn up. And then didn't they use a car to try to detect the radioactivity? <laughs> well, they, they brought in, so the authorities brought in specialist search crews, Um, firefighters, nuclear science specialists um, and this special equipment that could detect gamma radiation from uh, 20 metres away. And the plan was to load this equipment on the back of a car uh, and drive the 1,400 kilometres. But it was considered such a difficult thing to find this capsule. Needle in a haystack. A needle in Mm. a haystack. And it made global news. Like the BBC, CNN, everyone was reporting on this It was on the side of the road, wasn't it, in the end? (laughs) It's two metres from the side of the road, 70 kilometres 
letters from uh, the mine where it was originally set. The search groups have quite literally found uh, the needle in the haystack. Uh, and so they probably could have found it in a day uh, if they'd used this equipment from the start. Uh, and it took them a week or so, it but they found awesome it. awesome if they put it like in the WA Museum or yeah, something. I know. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was to me one of the, one of the yeah, weirdest I did like that story. surprise stories of mm. the year. 13. On February 6th this year, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake struck southern and central Turkey and parts of western and northern Syria. It was the largest earthquake in Turkey since 1939 and was felt as far Far away as Egypt. Now, do you remember the the vision that we got mm. out of that earthquake? It was just absolutely shocking. <laughs> The widespread damage over an area roughly the size of Germany, um, an estimated 14 million people in Turkey were impacted. 1.5 million people were left homeless. The death toll now, looking back on it, was just under 60,000 people. Uh, 50,000 in Turkey, uh, nearly 10,000 in Syria. The deadliest earthquake um, in present-day Turkey since the year mm. 526. And remember, it had a, quite a political fallout as huge, well. Huge, huge yeah. political fallout. You're absolutely mm. right. Like the the damage bill was estimated at nearly 150 billion US dollars in Turkey, and there were a lot of criticism of the Erdogan government over its response, um, over politicising the earthquake response, and also the corruption and negligent management of building building codes. codes yeah, because uh, you remember all of the stories that came out after the mm. earthquake, and people were like, well, you know, basically they had amnesty periods where construction companies didn't even have to get buildings licensed; yeah. they could yeah. just put up whatever they want, and then all these buildings of course fell they down fell. in the earthquake mm. and killed t- thousands of people um, it's disgraceful and then Erdogan then won the next election yeah. so obviously people didn't hold it against him that much or he found a way to weasel out of it um, yeah. but yeah that was that was one of the really tragic incidents in 2023 now one story that has really dominated state politics in the news cycle this year has been the ongoing saga surrounding Bruce Lerman um, who of course was accused of raping Brittany Higgins in Australian Parliament in 2019, which is something that he has always very strenuously denied. Um, This year, he sued uh, Lisa Wilkinson and her employer, Network 10, over an interview they broadcast with Brittany Higgins on the project in 2021, um, where he alleges he was defamed. Um, In December, ACT prosecutors dropped the charges against Lerman in that case uh, against uh, Brittany Higgins, saying that a retrial would pose an unacceptable risk to her health. Um, as I said, he's always denied the allegation. Um, he pleaded not guilty uh, to one charge of sexual intercourse without consent. Um, but now this civil case against uh, Network 10 and Wilkinson has brought the matter back to the fore. Uh, we've seen daily coverage, uh, media outlets doing live blogging of everything that's said in court. Um, and the burden of proof is very different uh, in a civil case. Mm. And so we've seen Network 10 um, trying to uh, say that they had the defence of justification. In other words, they're arguing that the imputation that that Lerman raped Higgins is substantially true. They're also arguing public interest. Um, But as a result, we've seen some uh, fascinating things come out, uh, secret audio recordings, Mm. um, testimony from uh, various uh, colleagues, former colleagues, former um, uh, political staffers. It has been something that has captured the attention of the nation. I can't necessarily say that overall it's a positive, though. Uh, 
not I don't think there's any winners yeah. in this case whatsoever. Um, and what disturbs me about it is I can't help but feel um, that it makes victims of rape question whether they should, should come, come forward, forward or not. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, it certainly uh, is is dragging everybody through the mud, including, including Brittany Higgins, um, and that case will continue uh, for a few more uh, days and weeks to come. <laughs> Climate change was a story that just kept rearing its head in 2023. It will be the hottest year on record. Do you remember all the times we spoke about a new record being set? Oh, oh this we is We spoke the about month. climate change so much yeah, this, this year. Is, this yeah. is, oh, no, now is a new hottest week, yeah. a new highest temperature ever recorded uh, by the Copernicus Climate Change Service. Um, and so the official declaration that it was the hottest year on record was made weeks before the end of the year, yeah. which has never been done before. Um, and then on top of that, you had all of the impacts of climate change. You had those terrible wildfires in Maui, uh, the yeah. wildfires in Canada that impacted yeah. Europe, air quality. Europe. Europe as well. Yeah. Um, and then it finished off this huge year in climate change news with COP28 that just happened um, in December in the United Arab Emirates. And that probably was pretty symptomatic of the climate change debate this year. A lot of good intentions, yeah. um, not a lot of tangible uh, action. Um, and so we'll go into 2024, not really a whole lot better than we were in 2023 when it comes to dealing with man-made climate change. But something has to be done because, you know, you look at that 1.5 degree increase threshold and the catastrophic impacts that that will have on the world, um, you know, that could come sooner rather than later yeah. unless we do something. You're listening to The West Live. They say pets are for life, not just for Christmas. But if you're thinking of adding an animal to your household over the festive season, what about a budgie? Our next guest certainly recommends it. He's got 400 of them. Joining me now is the president of the Budgerigar Council of South Australia, Troy Holmes. G'day, Troy. Welcome to The West Live. Ben, thank you very much for having me. And so how did you get into budgies? Believe it or not, as a kid, uh, my uncle caught one in a market garden and uh, managed to pass it over to me. And uh, we hung it above the, the freezer at home for the longest time, named it after my best mate, Stefan, and uh, hung it up there, took it to the pet shop. And uh, they told us that Stefan was a Stephanie. So <laughs> a, a few years later, we managed to go to the pet shop and buy ourselves a Stefan and uh, managed to finally get the one that I liked. But... Uh, yeah, we went on a few years later and found another one, a white one, put the two of them together. Um, they were actually a male and a female and uh, started breeding them from there as a kid and got into it, probably had a 10-year hiatus between finishing high school and having kids where I didn't have birds, but I've been in it most of my life. Yeah, wow, a lifelong, a lifelong uh, passion for budgies. And they are such an Aussie uh, phenomenon. I think everybody growing up had a mate with a budgie. Maybe a lot of listeners had budgies themselves. Now, what can you tell us about the species themselves? So the budgie obviously is native to Australia. Um, it's found in what, well, we call them murmurs, um, but big packs of budgies, most people would refer to them, um, in outback Australia. And uh, they are obviously, believe it or not, Wikipedia tells you that they're the world's third most popular pet. So as a bird that's native to Australia, only obviously found in the wild here, fruits are rated as the, the world's third most popular pet. Countries like Spain and you know, the US and places like that, when you combine it across the world, I think he's punching above his weight a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a fun stat. And so why do you think budgies are so popular? Look, I think they're a great balance between affordability and interaction. And I think they're particularly relevant at the moment in a cost of living crisis. 
So you can uh, you can obviously most places will allow you to have them in something like a rental property. So where you have a dog or a cat that you know may interfere with the carpets or may scratch the door, the budgies are a whole lot less maintenance. Um, it's not going to affect things nearly as much. And obviously, in terms of affordability, uh, we were crunching the numbers the other day, and it works out that if you're buying a 20 kilo bag of seed from your local grain store, you're probably paying about 25 cents a day in seed to feed a budgie. When you talk about paying 25 bucks from a pet shop, you know, for a bird, they're a very affordable pet, and obviously they're not sitting in a and in an aquarium and you're watching them go around in circles. You can actually train them, you can teach them to talk, and we're finding that a lot of the new owners of budgies are actually um, surprised and delighted by the depth of the bonds that they're able to form with their birds. Yeah, well, let's talk a bit about that because uh, I know friends who have budgies and other types of parrots and, and they do form uh, like really deep relationships with the birds. People who have no experience of them, though, would have no idea about this. Can you give us an idea about that bond? We've, here in Adelaide, um, we've got a couple of owners who, you know, they've spent enough time with their birds that they're actually able to speak multiple languages. So we have one bird over here in Adelaide, Lil, uh, with its owner who can speak both English and Japanese. We've got somebody else has another bird that's actually able to teach other birds to speak another language. I think that's pretty phenomenal. So, <laughs> I've, never heard of, I've never heard of that. Uh, but it makes sense, of course, if they can if they can talk English. I'm sure they can talk any other language. Uh, that's incredible. And but and, and people let them out of their cages, right, and let them roam around the house, and and that can be quite therapeutic. And, and you can really have quite a um uh, you know a, a touching relationship with these little birds. You, you absolutely can. Obviously, you need to preface that with you know you've obviously got to train the bird and have it used to being out and being around the house. Um, if you were to go and just buy an adult pet budgie and bring it home and open the door and fly around, it may crash into the walls and do, do a bunch of things. But, you know, as you, if you've spent enough time with it and you um, nurture it, obviously there's nothing more therapeutic than caring for an animal. As long as you're doing that with it, you can fly the bird around the house. Some people will elect to trim one of the wings on it as a baby so that um, it is able to not fly away too much and obviously gets it used to the indoor environment and everything that's around there in that space. So that's something to obviously consider. You don't, we, we don't necessarily have to do that, but some, some people do elect to. Mm. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And so people out there listening today going, okay, that's it, Troy, you convinced me. I'm going to get a budgie for Christmas. Uh, what do they need to do next? How do they need to be prepared to have one in their house? Look, in... Um, in Western Australia, there is a WA Budgerigar Council. So if you go onto the website, uh, wabudgerigarcouncil.com, you should find some great information on there in terms of um, how to look after your bird and where your local Budgerigar clubs are. But obviously the internet itself is a great resource for finding out a lot of that. Um, our website over here in South Australia is bcsa.com.au and we have a lot of information on there for new pet bird owners. We've got some YouTube videos on how to feed your birds uh, what you should be doing. But uh, you can also go down to your local pet shop and seek out some advice. When I got into birds, uh, we didn't have the internet, so it was at a library and the pet store um, to go and try and seek out that information. But obviously today we're blessed with having so much of it now online. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Of all the council stories we've done on the West Live this year, uh, this one about the Budgerigar Council, I think, is might just be my favourite for the year. Uh, Troy Holmes, President of the Budgerigar Council of South Australia, thanks for joining me on the West Live. Ben, thank you so much for having me.
When it comes to healthy eating, you could be forgiven for thinking the food additive MSG was the work of the devil. It's historically been associated with foods like your Chinese takeout, but for years now, businesses and companies making processed foods have made sure to spruik their products are MSG-free. But now it appears that monosodium glutamate is making an unexpected comeback. Here to explain is dietitian Boris Kazakov. Good morning, Boris. Welcome to The West Live. Thank you very much. Pleasure okay. to be on. And so, what is MSG exactly? Look, MSG is a food additive. It actually enhances flavour of foods, and it actually its full name is called monosodium glutamate. It comes from an amino acid called glutamic acid, and it just will enhance the flavour of food, but it can't improve the inferior quality of the food or make up for more, you know poor cooking practices. It doesn't allow a cook or a chef to substitute low quality or high for quality ingredients in a recipe, but it doesn't even tenderize meat. So it actually just enhances the flavors of the foods that already are there. Yeah, right. So why does it have such a bad reputation? Look, it started off many, many years ago in the 60s. There was a Chinese-American doctor in New York that um, went to a Chinese restaurant and started having all these symptoms and headaches and so forth. And he thought, well, he write a letter to the... Uh, New England Journal of Medicine explaining what happened and it just went on from there. Yeah, right. And so is it naturally occurring? It is. It is. There's many foods that are actually naturally occurring that contain glutamates, tomatoes, onions, cheese, particularly strong cheese like parmesan, which I love, mushrooms, and just general animal protein such as meat, chicken, fish and seafood. So they actually contain glutamates. Yeah, right. And so is there any scientific link between the consumption of MSG and some of those some of those symptoms that you're talking about there, you know, like whether you're sort of getting the sweats at night, you can't sleep, all of those sorts of things, heart palpitations? Look, there's numerous studies out there, you know, looking at the effects of MSG on those sort of symptoms, but there's no conclusive evidence at this point in time. However, having said that, there are certain individuals that, you know, do have issues with MSG. You know, they have headaches, they have hives, itchy throat, gut pain. And my advice to those people is certainly find out whether they consume that MSG, which appears on a food label. It must be by law if it contains MSG. It has number 621. Yeah, right. And so we're hearing now that a lot of top chefs around the world are putting MSG back in their foods because, as you say, it's a, a flavour enhancer. Is it better or worse than salt? Look, MSG contains about a third of the amount of sodium compared to table salt. And so it's used in very small, well, small quantities in salt. And, however, we're trying to get people, from my perspective, you know, we're eating too much salt anyway. So if we can use MSG, as you said, it contains a third of the salt, that's going to be a benefit because you only use it in small quantities. Yet when it comes to table salt, I see people using that shaker even before they even taste their food. <laughs> it's it's habitual, I know. I have to sometimes uh, pull my daughter up when I see her reaching for it. I was like, hang on a minute. It's already been seasoned perfectly by your chef, the, your dad. Uh, don't don't worry about seasoning it. And so so you'd then say, this is interesting, Boris, so you'd then say that there's there's nothing really inherently wrong about adding MSG to your cooking. Look, not at all. I mean, whether it's MSG that's been manufactured and it's made by fermentation process of uh, carbohydrates like sugar, sugar beet, etc., 
but also, you know, it naturally occurs in foods, for example, Vegemite. When I make my bolognese sauce, I add a little bit of Vegemite to enhance the flavour of the meat. Um, and, and that's where the flavour comes. And I'm like, much like yourself. I'm cooking. My son adds salt even before he's tasted it. He says, hey, mate, what are you doing? <laughs> There's enough salt in there anyway. So I'm just using naturally occurring glutamate in these particular foods to enhance the flavour of my meals. Yeah, and of course the Japanese know all about this with the, uh, with their love of umami and they adding things like uh, like sea, seaweed dashi and other th- products like that, uh, which I'm sure is glutamate being added to the food to to pump up the flavour. Um, so that, this is this is really really interesting. I think uh, the message here is to to do your research. Um, don't just go uh, putting it in in the same quantities as you will salt. Uh, and as you say, Boris, it's you know it's not some magic potion that's going to suddenly make uh, terrible food taste good, but it might make good food taste even better. Uh, dietitian Boris Kazakov, thanks for giving us some advice for making Christmas lunch even better this year. My pleasure. All the very, very best to all listeners out there. Merry Christmas and a happy new year and a healthy, healthy new year. You've been listening to The West Live with Ben O'Shea. If the story behind the story matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver.